Ignition sequence start. Five. Everything. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake Jr. This is Everything Sounds. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Although routines such as those were a staple of vaudeville, Abbott and Costello's Who's on First sketch was the first that gained widespread fame through a live radio performance they did in 1938. Due to its popularity after that first performance, the duo had to perform it in a number of venues, and to do so they had to alter the routine on a whim by constraining or expanding its length for radio, television, or a live audience. In the years following that 1938 performance, it's been altered and parodied on the stage and screen. The routine has been used in various forms on sketch comedy shows. Look, you're confused by their names because they all sound like questions. Animated series. Who's on first? Yes. Not the pronoun, but rather a player with the unlikely name of who is on first. Late night TV. What is your name? No, no, no. What's on second? This is who. That's what I'm trying to find out. All right, calm down, will you? And even some present day sitcoms. What did you say when Zach walked in? Who? Zach. Why do you keep saying Zach? Because you keep saying who? The sketch even made an appearance in a non-scripted event. In the 2007 baseball game, Chin Ling Hu of the Los Angeles Dodgers hit a base hit, and the announcer came over the loudspeaker and said, okay, everybody, all together, who's on first? Even kids who may not have any clue about the routine or Abbott and Costello, they've made their own version. All I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on false base? No, what is on second I'm base? I'm not asking you who's on second. <laughs> who's on false? What base at a time? Well, don't change the play there will always be reinterpretations, but if you break down the resulting works, you'll find that Abbott and Costello, as well as their time and place in history, are all still there at the core. Today, we'll learn about how humorous and fun traditions are carried on and what role they play in everyday life. But to do that, we'll dig a little bit deeper. We're interested in the jokes, sounds, and songs that we hear and absorb in the years before a routine like Who's on First would even have any appeal to us. To do that, we went to Indiana University to talk to this man. Uh, my name is Fernando Orejuela. I am a senior lecturer in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. One of Fernando's specialties is in an area of study called children's folklore. Folklore is the study of artistic communication. It can include the stories, music, and other customs or art forms that make up the traditions within one culture. Children's folklore, on the other hand, focuses on the culture of childhood. Fernando will help us understand the jokes and songs that make up the sounds of the playground. Children's jokes and songs cover a wide spectrum of subjects and tones, but they can give us a glimpse into childhood development, concerns, and anxieties. Many folklorists are interested in joke cycles, which are jokes that fit within a particular theme. Jokes have been a part of the recorded human culture since at least 1900 BC, and some would claim that the first jokes, well, they came well before that. We can't say for sure when or where jokes or joke cycles came from, but we do have some clues about how they developed. There were um, folk narratives. They were humorous. Um, they were typically uh, with very simple characters, and they were not complex in that they didn't have multiple episodes the way a folk tale might. They were just a simple, a simple um, tale with just one episode. 
And that's where the joke itself comes from. Today, children's jokes are still structurally accessible. Many jokes, especially in early childhood, follow a familiar format, the riddle. It's a Q&A, and it, it's, it's quick, it's, it can be witty. The traditional way of thinking about the riddle was that it was lengthier and that there were multiple sentences to kind of obscure or, or confuse or create a false gestalt. Um, these riddling joke cycles and are a little bit more basic. It's not simplistic, but they're basic and they're easier to construct than those more um, culturally specific riddles. And there are different stages that kids go through to comprehend and master the jokes they hear. Kids start understanding the structure maybe as early as four and five, but don't master the technique and understand the wit or humor until around age eight. But immediately after that, you know, between eight and nine, they start decreasing the number of, of those kind of riddle jokes. However, they don't stop. They continue. There is one type of joke that we can trace back to Shakespeare. Nearly everyone knows these jokes and enjoys them, even if the youngest among us don't entirely understand them. Knock-knock jokes. Uh, and I think those are the ones that are earliest to, to, to develop because you, the setup is always the same. And you always have a knock-knock and then there's something that has to happen for the responder to who's going to answer the door to do something. Young kids understand how knock-knock jokes work, but they don't quite have a grasp on why they are funny. They just make something up and get responses often the same as what a real joke would get. Someone who is older finds humor in the absurdity of the response, but children enjoy getting a positive response in return. And so that positive reinforcement only trains them to do it again. So knock, knock, who's there, um, book, uh, book who, I don't know. And then someone will respond and, and, and laugh because that's not what they're expecting. But it's, it's kind of cute. And as they get older, they'll try to figure out what, so why is the book knocking on the door? The structure of jokes and joke cycles for kids often have a similar format to knock, knock jokes, a question and answer form, but they can serve a different purpose. Uh, a lot of times they uh, allow the kid to kind of sublimate anxieties or concerns, and so they might be particularly uh, unpleasant or unattractive, especially to adults. So starting in the early 1970s, for example, we had Helen Keller jokes that are still kind of popular today, but that was a cycle of jokes that kids would tell each other. Um, at a time when um, schools started integrating and allowing kids with certain um, disabilities to, to be mainstreamed. And they typically are examples of, of ch children's anxieties and expressed through humor, sick humor. And some of this humor is truly sick. It's often based on current events or recent tragedies. They're often told immediately after a traumatic event or the passing of a public figure. There were joke cycles after the death of Princess Diana, Whitney Houston, Steve Jobs, Michael Jackson, and even after 9-11. These jokes may seem edgy or cruel, but for some kids and adults, those joke cycles may displace some of the burden of dealing with the painful realities of a situation. One type of joke that does seem to appeal to boys is the Yo Mama joke cycle. Insulting mothers has, like knock-knock jokes, been around in some form, at least since Shakespeare's time. An example from his work includes a character calling someone a dog, and they respond with, Thy mother's of my generation, what's she if I be a dog? 
<laughs> I think that was pretty good. You are the master of insults in iambic pentameter. <laughs> but if you're unfamiliar with what Yo Mama jokes sound like today, they're things like, Yo Mama is so old, the fire department is on standby when you light her birthday cake. Oh, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. Or, Yo Mama is so stupid, when I told her drinks are on the house, she went to get a ladder. Oh, that one's just mean. I know. Fernando called these kind of jokes ritualized insults. And Yo Mama jokes in particular had a revival thanks in part to television. Yo Mama. Man, I wouldn't take that if I was you. Yo Mama. There was a kind of a lull in the 1990s that I had experienced. Um, most of these jokes that I had learned were from urban centers, mostly African-American kids who were performing them. Uh, there was a bit of a revitalization thanks to MTV and having Yo Mama uh, routine um, competitions and that brought it back into the mainstream so that you had other kids, not necessarily just African-American kids or kids living in urban centers who were practicing it, but now it's... Now it's almost a global phenomenon. These jokes may seem mean or cruel, but for some kids, telling a better or funnier Yo Mama joke can be a big deal. They could feel empowered by making others laugh and getting rid of anxiety about their own family life by creating a caricature of someone else's mother. So this was a way to kind of gain power by attacking a, a friend's mother or a competitor's mom. But that can get complicated in different cultures. Remember Fernando mentioning that these jokes became a global phenomenon? The interesting thing is that um, I heard your mom and joke routines in uh, West Africa, which was pretty uncommon, especially in Nigeria, because mothers are placed on a pretty high threshold, uh, almost worshipful in, in, in a lot of ways. And you know, insults about mothers would never happen. But this younger generation, probably not in earshot among adults are practicing what they've learned on MTV or the internet. While we're talking about the media and the internet, those factors also play a role in shaping the songs and types of activities that kids are engaging in on the playground. A lot of pretend play today is reenactments of Idol or some other vocal competition television program. Popular culture has always been an important part of kids' culture, but I, I would say because of the access that they have to it, 24-7 on their iPhones, and kids have iPhones probably just as much as adults do, and they're constantly playing and texting and getting updates and tweeting, so they don't even have to wait to go home to, or to the school to check the computer. It's right there in their pocket. Which brings us to playground songs. Folklorists use that term to describe a number of different kid songs. Uh, playground songs can be anything from uh, hand clap games to ring games. Um, good number of parody songs. Parody songs cover a lot of ground on their own. Back in the 70s, we used to have a song called Comet. Uh, it was the cleans a cleansing product, and the jingle was Comet. Uh, and we'd sing a song that paradise the, the jingle, uh, Comet. Makes your teeth turn green, Comet. Uh, it makes you vomit. So buy some Comet and vomit today. And it just played off of the, the jingle. Some of the songs that used to be common on playgrounds aren't permitted on school grounds since they are deemed to be inappropriate. Many schools in America have adopted zero-tolerance policies concerning violence or perceived threats due to a number of high-profile school shootings. And one of those songs that used to be a staple of the playground that is now disappearing is one that used the melody of the Battle Hymn of the Republic and starts with the line, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the burning of the school. We have tortured all the teachers. We have broken all the rules. See what I'm saying? 
Kassan continues to go down to uh, either hang the principal or to shoot the principal. And uh, for obvious reasons, in a zero-tolerance policy world, you can't sing those songs. So um, the kids generally find other ways to, to reveal or sing or dissent from the, the, the status quo that is given to them by the adult world. Part of that status quo includes not talking about taboo topics such as sexuality. Kids will always try to find ways to get around the rules, even when it comes to innocent activities like singing jump rope rhymes. A lot of those songs have something to do with the adult process, the, the maturation process. And some of them can be a little risque, su- suggestively sexual, but from a kid's perspective. And even though many of their songs are being borrowed, copied, or parodied, kids are using their own creativity amongst their peers at the risk of seeming crude or disobedient to adults. They're trying to deal with changes in their own lives or improve their social standing by seeming more knowledgeable or aware than they may actually be. I think a lot of those parody songs in particular demonstrate an exaggeration of the importance of maturation. And some of those maturations are, are displays of maturation are incredibly crass, but they give the suggestion that you know more than you actually do and maybe give you some kid capital because you're willing to say it or you know the female body or the male body in certain ways. Fernando and his colleagues get as close as just about anyone can to being accepted and trusted with some of the secrets and codes of childhood. We all had them once, but have either moved on, forgotten, or the rules have changed when we weren't paying attention. As kids, we're not given the ability to communicate. We learn it from things that are handed down by our parents, teachers, and from being around other children. Conversing is something that is built, and things like jokes and playground songs help build a foundation for who we ultimately become. We're a product of our genes, but we're also a product of our experiences. When we were young, much of what we experienced was out of our control. Occasionally, we'd get granted permission to have the freedom to decide how we wanted to spend our time. As adults, we can make those choices whenever we see fit because now we're making the rules. We engage in activities or join groups that provide us stability, as opposed to the tiny acts of rebellion that we craved in youth. We may resist change for the sake of consistency and comfort as we age, but kids, they can be more flexible. Culture groups um, may have a commitment to certain lore, and that generation will continue to pass on that culture's um, lore for centuries. Kids' culture is not that way. Um, Kids' culture is always on top of what's current. And um, you have to be aware of their worldview at any given time is going to be changing, even within a generation. So it's always new. There's always something new. And there's something that's lost. And But something else replaces it. Fernando Orjuela is a senior lecturer at the IU Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, and he teaches courses on children's folklore, youth subcultures, and hip-hop music and culture. Everything Sounds is an independent production. Literally just Craig and myself, supported with the help of listeners like you. Visit everythingsounds.org support and find out how you can become an Everything Sounds audiophile and help keep the show going. 
And if you enjoy the show, you can share it with your friends and write a review on iTunes. You'll find all the links you need to do that at everythingsounds.org. And find our episode guide and links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr accounts on the site as well. Until next time, I'm George Drake Jr. And I'm Craig Shang. Thanks for listening to Everything Sound. This has been Everything Sounds. Find out more about the podcast at everythingsounds.org. Connect with Everything Sounds on Facebook and also on Twitter.